Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening where we continue our reflections into theology of the body. And it's just great to be back with you in general. I know I have been away for about four or five days, and we've had to re-air some previous programming. So it is good to uh, start anew here this Wednesday evening, an evening where we will be reflecting into, again, Theology of the Body and Christopher West's work, Fill These Hearts, a work where he explores John Paul II's thought under the umbrella of desire, design, and destiny, these three overarching principles, desire, what we long for, design, what we were created for, and of course, this section that we are in now, destiny, what we are headed for, huh? Destiny, the heavenly Jerusalem. So we will jump right into our book. I think we were more or less on page 128. Again, we will hit the themes that Christopher West takes up and just kind of reflect with it. And my dear friends, if you have any questions and comments about just not what we talk about here on Wednesday evenings with Theology of the Body, but also any question you might have about the Christian and Catholic faith, any comment, any observation, I'd love to hear from you wherever you are. If you are listening to this podcast uh, somewhere on the other side of the United States, or maybe you're listening to this podcast in Brazil or or Germany, or France, or England, wherever you are, please send me your emails. It doesn't matter where you are. Because of today's technology, you can send me your questions, and I love to receive your questions. I love to dialogue with you about what you're thinking about, especially when it comes to theology of the body. Okay, with that, destiny. My dear friends, without destiny, really, (laughs) there's no such thing as morality, There's no such thing as right and wrong. If we are not living with the end in mind, there's going to be no compass, no trajectory. I mean, think about it. Think what direction you would need to drive to to get to the nearest park. If that park is your destiny and you drive in the opposite direction, what would a person say to you? Well, (laughs) you're going the wrong way, right? But if you have no particular place to go, it doesn't matter at all which direction you drive, huh? There is no right way to go or wrong way to go. Christopher West notes that great scene from Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, that classic that we have all probably watched, huh? From 1987 with John Candy and Steve Martin. There's that scene where they're driving down the wrong side of the highway, And a driver on the other side of the median strip is trying to frantically get their attention, huh? Steve Martin rolls down his window and hears the other driver scream, you're going the wrong way. John Candy, oblivious to his own blunder, responds, oh, you know, he's drunk. How how, how would he know where we're going? Only upon seeing the headlights of two 18-wheelers appearing on the horizon, does John Candy realize what the other driver was screaming about, huh? Aren't we the same way 
with the church sometimes, especially in her teachings on sex and marriage. The church motivated by love and concern like that driver in planes, trains, and automobiles is sane to to modern world, sometimes screaming to modern world, you're going the wrong way. But most of us are like John Candy, oblivious to our own blunders and dismissive of any such warnings. After all, how many times have we heard it? What can the church possibly know about sex? How does the church know where we are quote-unquote going? But maybe, and this is the proposition that we have been taking up for the past year and a half, maybe the church, just like the other driver, is seeing something we don't see, knows something we don't know. We don't have to wait until those headlights appear on the horizon. Maybe it's time right now for society and for us as individuals to take a look, another look at what the church really teaches about that all-important virtue of chastity. A lot of us may, in fact, discover a very different reality than what we had ever imagined. We need to be serious in how we think about destiny, my friends. And if we are going to work with the end in mind, that is to say, live with the end in mind, as it relates to theology of the body, the virtue of chastity is quintessential. Now, that being said, in one of my favorite parts of the whole book, this is where Christopher West begins to talk about the unicorn. You know, the the towering arches in the nave of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome are adorned with dramatic marble statues that depict various virtues. And perhaps the most striking is the ornate statue of this beautiful bare-breasted woman who holds an open golden rose tenderly in her left hand and in her right grasps the horn of a wild golden unicorn. Now, what virtue is this? Well, as you can probably guess, chastity, huh? Yes, this is the image that St. Peter's Basilica, the largest and most famous church in all of Christendom, holds out to the world as an invitation to ponder the meaning of rightly directed eros. So, like any invitation, it is very important for us to accept it, to ponder the meaning of it, and ultimately embrace it. First of all, we should probably speak to something here. I know many of us have been formed by uh, distorted images and ideas of the female body, um, whereby a statue of a bare-breasted woman might appear almost scandalous. But actually, that should not be the case, because the medieval mind was not contending with the same barrage of pornographic distortions that we face today. And we have to be sensitive to this. We have to engage the historical context to which these beautiful statues come to us. Christian art of this period often portrayed the virtue of love, charity, through what? But the tender image of a woman breastfeeding, or even even the evocative image of a woman squeezing her breast to express her milk. 
the offering of her nourishment representing what? But the outpouring of her love. Both of these images of love and charity can be found among the sculptures in St. Peter's Basilica adorning the the tombs of various popes. It's most fascinating, and this is why it's so important to get into the original meaning of things, especially when it comes to art. Now, because of the intimate relationship between chastity and love, it is altogether fitting when one properly understands and employs the symbolism to portray the virtue of chastity with a woman whose breasts are reverently revealed. For it is chastity that actually heals us of the pornographic distortions and allows us to see this woman's breasts in this statue rightly as an integral expression of a more holy love. Huh? Regarding the objects in her hands, it doesn't take a leap of the imagination to recognize that the rose, of course, is a symbol that evokes the feminine mystery, and the unicorn horn, a symbol that evokes the masculine mystery. In this picture, we have her outstretched hands, representing her desire to bring the masculine and feminine mysteries together in their proper creative harmony. Indeed, my friends, the unicorn in this image seems intent on reaching the rose, but he must be guided by the fair maiden if he is to honor the rose and not violate it. Beyond being a highly developed symbol of the feminine mystery, the rose, as many of us know, is also a symbol of love and beauty. And in this context, we could even say a symbol of the beauty of love, of chaste love, of rightly directed eros. Authentic chastity, my friends, enables us to discover the richly textured and multi-layered beauty of love. It is the beauty of love's potency and strength, as symbolized in the case of the statue by the unicorn, but it's also the beauty of something tender, even fragile, as symbolized by the rose. The maiden holds the rose gently, with an open hand, as if to indicate the delicacy required of chastity. Why? Because one does not manhandle a flower, huh? The horn of the unicorn, on the other hand, and as Christopher West notes quite literally, huh, must be held firmly. It symbolically suggests a sense of power. It symbolically suggests a sense of danger. And yet, legend has it that if this power is properly harnessed, it can become what? A horn of salvation, a source of healing. In short, this is an animal that demands a great deal of respect. Why? Because it can gore you or save your life depending on one's reverence for its power. Of course, we see this in respect to the maiden's gaze. She does not tyrannize the unicorn, but directs its power rightly. Huh? This is the wonder and the beauty of the masculine and the feminine that, again, my friends, we have talked about so much, the complementarity that exists between the two. Complementarity is a very important word to the Christian and Catholic life. It is something that reaches beyond just male and female, but into creation itself, right? 
If you're to go to a beach, the very large rock is masculine. It is firm. It is strong. The water itself is feminine. It is fertile and life-giving. And when the two come together, when the water is crashing up against the rock, there is something almost intoxicating about it. We go to beachfronts to see the water crashing up against the rock. Why? Because there is something deeply satisfying about the masculine and the feminine. We've noted it before. Why is it that a beachfront property is the most expensive property in the world? Well, it's because where what is masculine and feminine meet? Water and land. What is water without land? What is land without water? They need each other. While they are opposites, they are drawn to each other. Huh. Now, all that being said, <laughs> and Christopher West notes this, before uh, the unicorn took on a, a kind of new age aura in the modern world, it had a rich tradition as a Christian symbol. Uh, Christopher West goes to a book here uh, authored by Chris Laver titled The Natural History of the Unicorn. In this text, we read that the unicorn appears in Old Testament texts and Greek and natural histories. Christians adopted the unicorn as a symbol of Christ, the Middle Ages as a symbol of courtly love. And of course, it's within this symbolic tradition that we find the interpretive key for why we find this beautiful and evocative work of art in St. Peter's Basilica. The unicorn evokes a sense of mystery. We can say, my friends, a sense of elusiveness, a sense of wildness. Legends hold that only a pure maiden could capture and tame a unicorn. It is said that if a virgin encountered a unicorn, the ferocious, untamable, and uncatchable creature would simply approach, lay his head on the virgin's lap, and become docile to her. Hey, think about that, my friends. Think about how this is such a rich image for us as male and female. Based upon this symbolism, the unicorn often again appeared in medieval romantic literature as an indication of the lover's purity of intention. We would often see how the lover approaches his beloved the way a unicorn approaches a maiden, to be what? Tamed. Huh? Now, does that mean that the unicorn loses any of its vitality? No. The spirit, quote-unquote, of the unicorn is not broken or suppressed by chastity. Rather, the virtue of chastity channels the unicorn's potency into something healing, creative, redemptive. We ought to appreciate the beauty and the richness of the symbol of the unicorn and why we find it in St. Peter's Basilica. And so the maiden who has captured the unicorn evokes an image of what? Eros that has been properly disciplined, but nonetheless wild. In fact, 
a properly disciplined eros is even more wild than its counterfeit. Recall what we talked about, oh, six, seven chapters ago between horizontal and vertical wildness. As wild as the horizontal variety might get, it is of its very nature limited. It loses all order in its hopeless and frantic search for infinite bliss in the realm of finite pleasures. Vertical wildness, on the other hand, without losing order, loses measure because it launches us into infinity. As Christopher West notes, vertical wildness is a rocket that through much struggle, discipline, and a radical openness to divine grace has found its true target, adjusted its trajectory, and thus it can launch with all its firepower without fear of missing the mark. And remember the importance of that phrase that he uses there. The Greek word that Paul employs for sin in the New Testament is hamartsia, which literally translates as missing the mark. Well, what is Paul translating? Paul is translating the Old Testament understanding of sin, which was simply to miss the mark. Why that kind of phrase? Well, to live in the law of God was to live in the heart of God. The law of God in the Hebrew, yalach, is to strike bullseye. If we don't live according to the law of God, if we don't live in the heart of God, we are going to what? Sin. Sin is defined by disobedience to God the Father. We can also define sin as breaking the Father's heart. Literally, sin is defined as missing the mark. And of course, the mark is bullseye, and bullseye is the heart of God. And so when we use this phrase, and, and when Christopher West employs this phrase, there is a rich, rich biblical context to it. So, we have to make sure that uh, we're living in that vertical wildness, huh? <laughs> because when we quote-unquote capture the unicorn, we share in the mystery of it, and it, it directs our wildness towards the good. And so this beautiful image of chastity in St. Peter's Basilica should help us recognize that the discipline required of chastity does not stifle or extinguish the fire of Eros. It takes them up into the greatest wildfire of all, the fire of the divine life, the fire of divine love, the fire that is the Holy Spirit, right? When we talk about the Word of God, what are we talking about? What is inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? What does the word inspire mean? Inspirare is the Latin, to set a flame, huh? to set a flame or to inflame, to breathe into. When we are in a living relationship with the Holy Spirit, we are set on fire for God. And it is our task to be on fire for God that we might warm those around us with the fire of God. You see, being set on fire is a good thing. And we must always see it as such. And of course, this is why we need to live chastely. This is why uh, we need to make a promise of immortality. 
by saying yes to God, by saying yes to love. I mean, how often is chastity considered something entirely negative, even an enemy of love? Right at the moment we desire to express our love, they say chastity intervenes with its no. Chastity certainly involves a no, but it is only a no to lust, a no that is an absolute prerequisite for learning how to say yes to love. John Paul II once said, chastity can only be thought of in association with the virtue of love, that its function is to free love from the utilitarian attitude. Of course, that attitude, as we've talked about it, that treats others as objects to be used for our own gratification. John Paul II goes on, with personal discipline and the help of divine grace, chastity enables us to control those centers deep within the human being in which the utilitarian attitude is hatched and grows. I love that phrase, is hatched and grows. My dear friends, as the Catechism speaks to it, chastity guards the intimate center of the person. Now, the discipline required here is not something stifling or destructive. In fact, it is incredibly creative and liberating. It's like the discipline required of maybe a professional athlete or musician. I've given this analogy before. Only by being disciplined will we reach our full potential. I mean, anyone can pick up a violin. Anyone can make meaningless noise. But that's grating to the soul. That's lust. But place that bow in the hands of a professional violinist and you will hear beauty that expands the soul and lifts you to the heavens. Behind that taste of heaven, however, as we well know, is a lifetime of what? Discipline, sacrifice, training. It's the same with chaste love. If we want to live and experience eros as a taste of heaven, what does it require? No less discipline and training than what is required of a professional athlete or a professional musician. I mean, how often do we get up early in the morning to make it to the gym? How often do we wake up early in the morning to make it to our CrossFit exercise? Huh? My challenge to you is how often do we wake up early in the morning to call upon the name of God? Do we have the same desire to strengthen our relationship with Jesus Christ that we have with looking fit, trim, dare I say ripped, huh? Do we? I could never overstate the point that the word challenge comes from the Latin provocatio, to call forth, to call out. We need to challenge ourselves. We need to be willing to say that there's a gap between the person we are and the person we ought to be, and until we enter into that gap, our life will be stale. Huh? That being said, it's only when we call lust love that we consider chastity the enemy of love. When we recognize the difference between lust and love, we see clearly that love is impossible without chastity. Because chastity is the virtue that orients all of our sexual desires and emotions towards the truth of love. It is a very big yes to making beautiful heavenly music. It is a great big yes to the true meaning and dignity of the human body 
and of course, our human sexuality. And this means, a point that Christopher West seemingly emphasizes, that everyone, regardless of his or her state in life, is called to the virtue of chastity. I mean, how many of us have heard admonitions to remain chaste until marriage? This, of course, is to equate chastity with abstinence. If we remain here, we will end with a terribly stilted and dangerously misguided understanding of chastity, not to mention marriage. This misguided understanding of chastity is dangerous because it sets up a very, we could say, legalistic paradigm of, of repression and, and, and indulgence without training us in the ways of self-mastery and self-giving. Be chaste until marriage, translates as Christopher West puts it, I need to cage the unicorn eros for now, but once I'm married, I'm allowed to open the cage. If this is our approach to chastity, get ready to be gored. <laughs> My dear friends, chastity is a virtue that manifests itself differently depending on one's state in life, but its essence is always the same. Because chastity means the successful integration of sexuality within the person and thus the inner unity of man in his bodily and spiritual being. That's the catechism. Everyone, everyone, my dear friends, is called to this personal and, of course, sexual integration, regardless, regardless of one's particular state in life. In fact, this integration is essential to the freedom and happiness we desire as human beings. If you to turn to the Catechism, paragraph 2339. I love this paragraph. Chastity is a training in human freedom. The alternative is clear. Either man governs his passions and finds peace, or he lets himself be dominated by them and becomes unhappy. You know, our culture talks a big line about sexual freedom. But what does our culture mean by it? Do whatever you want, however you want, whenever you want, and as Christopher West notes here, with whomever you want without ever saying no. Does this authentically promote freedom? Or does this promote addiction? If we were to direct Eros along the trajectory that leads to heaven, we must be about the business of freeing our freedom from bondage to this addiction. John Paul II says, if we are going to truly be free, we must be free from the domination of lust. And thus, we need to espouse towards chastity. Amen to that. Let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.